0: I'm going to ask now if you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 13, where we read a while ago, and uh, you sort of guessed by now that's not from the Gospels, and uh, so you maybe sort of figure out we're doing something a little bit different today. I'll explain that in just a few moments, but let me read the verse that I especially uh, want to uh, call out from the text, although we'll be looking at all of these verses today. That's verse number 10, and we're going to have a word of prayer. And uh, then we will uh, look in today's message. Let's look at verse number ten. Let me reread that for us. We have an altar, the writer says, whereof they have no right which to eat, which serve the tabernacle. And it's especially interesting to me that phrase, "We have an altar." In fact, that's precisely what I've entitled today's message: "We have an altar." And so we're going to ponder those thoughts by God's grace. Let's bow our heads. We'll have a word of prayer. And we'll ask him for the help we need to to do this. Father, we are thankful for this beautiful Lord's Day. Thank you for the moderating temperatures and uh, even for the rain that we had here toward the latter part of the week that uh, we know was needed. And uh, we thank you for your blessing, Lord. And thank you, Father, that now we have heard that this uh, tropical storm that's out there has sort of veered off from the Bahamas where they had all that trouble and uh, they might have some relief from this. And continue to pray, Lord, Our hearts go out to people that have been uh, through these kinds of things, have lost all that they have. We can only pray, Father, that you will get the right people to them, especially on behalf of the gospel. We know the government has a part in these types of things. We pray you give those people uh, wisdom, strength, and dedication. But uh, for those Christian agencies and workers that try to reach out, we pray there'll be openings for the gospel and that there will be those who realize just how impermanent even as uh, it was brought to our attention in the scripture reading today. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And Lord, it takes sometimes events like this for us to realize that all of the things of this world are passing away. The world is passing away, as John tells us, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And help us to focus on eternal truth We realize that we really can't delve into those things. We can't profit by them. We can't explain them. We can't receive them apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we thank you that he indwells the heart of every believer. And I pray, Father, you just give us fresh cleansing, fresh filling, fresh openness, so that we might uh, listen in, Lord, and be profited by those things that we hear today. Lord, I pray that you would just bless me and help as I bring this message today. May I be able to say those things that will be honoring to you and that will be especially helpful to the particular occasion that's before us today. I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, it was late last fall. We had the opportunity to uh, have a communion service together. And so here we are again today. Uh, You might remember, but it's been a ways back. I mentioned to you at that time, been my custom for the last many years when we would have Communion Sunday in our church, um, that I would always just put my ser- sermon series aside uh, and preach something. Uh, I always called them communion, communion meditations, but I would always do that because it's always been a concern to me, and I'm sure I've been guilty of it in earlier years of ministry where uh, we get to the end of the service. Usually we, we, communion is kind of a tack on, you know. We put it at the end of the service, and so everything's normal in the service. We have the regular song service. We have the regular this, the regular that, And the preacher gets up and preaches his regular message. And there's nothing wrong with all those things, except now we get to the end of the service and we're out of time. And so we're sort of rushing to get through this. And it burdened me. It burdened me as I saw this happen in services that I conducted. And I just said, I'm done with that. We're going to find some kind of a way to devote more time and attention to this so that God has adequate opportunity to prepare our hearts. And so that we have more opportunity to reflect uh, rather than just a few words that are called to our attention at the end of the sermon. So today I want to bring the message that I've entitled, We Have an Altar. Doesn't that seem like a strange thought to you? We have an altar. After all, we're Christian people, and that's kind of been the lay of the land in so far as how we think of it. Not that Jewish people are not here. They still are, and thank God they are. There's a remnant even this day according to the election of grace. Paul tells us this. And even in our lifetime or a little before, not too much before the lifetimes of some of us, the nation of Israel is back in the land. They're in existence. And uh, we see many things that indicate God keeping his word and moving moving things towards the culmination that he has promised in his word yet we're living in what we call the Christian dispensation because we realize that God has turned his attention to the ends of the earth. We realize Jesus came, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But we also know that, by and large, the Jewish people rejected their Lord and rejected their Messiah. And uh, God will one day turn his dealings to the Jewish nation once again. But living in this Christian era, living in this Christian dispensation, as I think it's accurate enough for us to refer to it, it really does seem a bit of an odd thought. Because we come to church on Sunday and we don't have any sacrifice to altar, so we think we have no particular altar, and we certainly have nothing to do with sacrifices, because especially as we understand the New Testament and the book of Hebrews, all of those things were figures and types and sacrifices which led up to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So you remember the one day that Jesus came along and John was there, John the Baptist, and a couple of his disciples, and he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And it was all a lead up to the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know those things, so it seems strange to say that we have an altar. I remember one service, this has been a number of years ago now, but... I had a retired minister who was part of the congregation and I said something I think towards the conclusion of the service about uh, in the invitation time about uh, either use the phraseology altar call or said something about coming to the altar. Well, it was my special blessing to be taken to task by him later saying the fact that we are living in the age of grace, We, we don't have an altar. And I thought about Hebrews 11 or 13 in verse 10. It says, we have an altar. I don't know whether he didn't read that verse, but uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit today because I think that as we ponder what the writer means, there's a, a lot of opportunity for us to really be put, have a lot of significant truth brought to our attention that really helps us kind of prepare for Uh, this time gathering around the Lord's table to remember his death till he comes. First of all, it would seem apparent, even from what I've said so far, would it not, that there must be symbolism here. For the writer to the Hebrews who spends so much of his time talking about the fact that all of those things were exactly that, temporary, lead-ups, types and symbols, that they had their fulfillment, their culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ, for him no less, for the author to the Hebrews no less, to make the statement, we have an altar, obviously projects our thoughts beyond taking the interpretation, the literal interpretation, that he's speaking about a Jewish altar. In many ways, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that, you know, we're not living in a disenfranchised day because we don't have the Old Testament altar any longer. In fact, we're living in a privileged day because we are living in the days where we can see all of that fulfilled. But he's obviously using a figure of speech. He's obviously using a metaphor. There's obviously some type of symbolic meaning that he has in mind here. And that's what I really want to explore for a few moments because it was rather apparent. Now, when we look at the epistle to the Hebrews, you can just ponder that for a moment. I, I hope you realize if you if you hear me say the author to the Hebrews, it's simply because I'm trying to be as correct as I know how to be. We simply do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And I realize that if you many of you will have a Bible, if you turn back to chapter 1, it's going to say the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. And I hope you realize that's not part of the inspired text. And so, but many people just assume the apostle paul was the writer and i can't prove that i can't disprove that there's a lot of reasons to think that the person who wrote the book of hebrews was obviously very very familiar with paul and his theology but chose to express himself in a way very different from paul and when you if you ever get the opportunity that's probably not going to happen for most of us here but it it, if you have an opportunity to study the original languages and you read Paul's epistles in Greek and then you come to the Hebrews and you, right away you're saying to yourself, okay, this is not Paul writing. This is a different style altogether. And he, he's obviously familiar with many of the concepts of Paul, but it doesn't seem to be Paul. Well, whoever wrote this letter, we really don't know, but there have been many theories on that over the year. And when you come to this particular passage of scripture, there have been many ideas as to exactly what the writer was talking about. But one thing is for sure, when this letter was written, it was written towards the latter part of the seventh decade of the first century. So let's pick a time. Let's just say somewhere around AD 66, AD 67. Well, do you know an event that took place in AD 70 that the Jewish altar after that was no more because the Jews... Even back in the days when Christ, the Jews were leery or the the Romans were leery about any type of a revolt, any type of a subversive force. This was the whole thing they tried to accuse Jesus of as being a subversive, being a, a, a king who was a rival to Caesar. But when you got to that point in time, there was a rebellion underway and Rome didn't tolerate rebellion very well. And so the Roman legions came in. And when eventually the the year A.D. 70 came, they were commanded by a man by the name of Titus, and Jerusalem was utterly sacked and destroyed. And if you think about it, here, this beautiful temple that was not even complete in the days of Jesus, because you'll recall it was Herod's temple, it was under construction, and the Jews even made that statement to Jesus when they misunderstood what he was saying about Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They said, Forty and six years this temple has been under construction. And it was still under construction. It wasn't even finished in the days of Jesus. And so now this, this spectacular, I mean, Herod was nothing if he was not a builder. And this spectacular structure that Herod was building on behalf of the Jews was utterly destroyed. You can read the accounts if you ever want to do this. We don't have accounts of it in the Bible, but we have the Roman historian Josephus who preserves an account, a firsthand account of it for us. You can read about it. But folks, I'm telling you, as of A.D. 70, there was no Jerusalem, there was no temple, there was no altar, and there hasn't been since. Now what's really curious is, the writer of the Hebrews says we have an altar. So he's obviously not talking about the altar that had been there. He's talking about some Christian counterpart to it, something that Christians have in place of it. And that's really what we want to talk about today. Let me illustrate it for you this way. If you're making, let's just, for the sake of argument today, let's, let's say that we're talking about a one-time trip. Well, the road is very helpful to us, especially if the road is well marked because we want to be able to get to where we're going. But whatever that destination is, the road is just a means to an end. Is that right? You really want to get to the, to the destination. And so it really helps if you're going along, especially if you're unfamiliar with the road. You ever had somebody give you directions before and they rattle off this stuff so fast? Sometimes I've had people give me directions where I can't even get it all written down but they'll say about the Amico that's over here and the transmission shop that's over here and the big oak tree down there. And I can't even begin to remember it all. I should just turn my phone on and record them while they're saying all this stuff. But you'd be surprised how much of what you do remember really helps when you're going along and you see that, oh, I've got the comfort of knowing I'm still on the right road. Well, this is exactly what all those things in the Old Testament were. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us this. Go back to chapter 9 for a few moments. And let's see what he has to say about this. In chapter 9, we're told this, verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures. See that? They're figures. They are the type to the antitype, so to speak. Their fulfillment is in Christ, which are figures, he says, of the true. But into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he once have offered, often have offered himself since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Well, the roadway to Christ so that they would be able to recognize Christ. He was the fulfillment of everything that the law spoke about. was well advertised. All the sacrifice, all the priests, all those different things were like the oak tree, the, the amico station, the transmission shop along the way, and foreshadowed Christ and who he would be and what he would do. And you have great need of that while you are on the road. But once you're at your destination, you don't need the road any longer. And that's what the that's what the, the truth is that we're looking at here this morning, that those things have been done away in Christ. They have been replaced. That's what the writer is trying to tell us in these verses. But nevertheless, he says that doesn't mean that the Christian is not without some counterpart to that. Just as the type was in the Old Testament and Christ was the antitype, so you can look back at all those different things and you can see what relevance they have and what it is that Christians have in place of that today. That's what the writer is trying to say to us. And of course, that altar that he's talking about is the sacrifice of christ he says that to us very plainly when you read these verses that we read about a moment ago verse 28 of chapter 9 so christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him he appeared uh, to to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself uh, in the verse uh, uh, 26 but now, in the, once in the end of the world, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then when we come over to our chapter where we did our reading, because the natural thing for us to do is to say to ourselves, well, all right, the sacrifice of Christ. He says we have an altar. Well, do you know what an altar is? Well, it's literally a place of sacrifice. So we do have a sacrifice today, do we not? That sacrifice is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If, as we tend to want to do, we're looking for some representation of that physically, we're looking to pin that down, I don't think we have to do that, but if we want to do that, it's not necessarily wrong to do that. And the most logical identification to make with that is, well, the An altar is a place of sacrifice. That is precisely what the word "thucyasterion" in Greek means, a place of sacrifice. Where is the place of Jesus' sacrifice? Well, it's the cross, right? It's the cross. So in verse 12, when we read here what he has to say, wherefore Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Where was his suffering? Where was his sacrifice? On Golgotha's hill. And so that's, that's what we tend to think about today. Now, once we've established that, and I didn't mean to take quite so much time with that, but I think we have to kind of get clear in our minds what we're, what we're talking about here. What is he really trying to accomplish by telling us this? And here's something where I think context has a, a really a bearing on this, because if you know anything about the epistle to the Hebrews, you know that once you get to chapter 13, all the argumentation and all the theology is over with. I mean, Hebrews is a heavy-going book. I'm sure you've, you've, you've sensed that as you've read the book. I mean, it is replete with all of these arguments that the writer gives about how Christ is better a better priesthood, better sacrifices, better promises, better than the angels, all these different things that you can kind of remember as I've said those things interlaced with warnings, sections of warnings, because he was writing to people, Jewish believers who had professed Christ, but who were experiencing a great deal of persecution and trial and trouble as a result of their profession, and some of them were wavering and uh, the writer was concerned that some of them were, were were lapsing and were were considering going back into Judaism and that's the whole reason that he writes this book and he he just has masterful argument upon masterful argument to demonstrate all of this but it's over now the end of his book is in some ways similar to some things that Paul did at the end of his epistles where he would be done with the the key message of the book and then There would be like a roundup time, like an epilogue, like, okay, here's a few potpourri things I just, before we go, I've got to tell you. Here are some exhortations. Here are some greetings. And you have that in this last chapter of the book of Hebrews. So the point that I'm trying to make is is the purpose here is completely and absolutely practical. All the heavy-duty arguments are over. When he starts talking about the cross, when he starts talking about we have an altar— He wants to make some practical points, and that's going to be the heart of what I talk about today, although I don't have time to talk about it nearly as much as I would like. So our first thought was the symbolism. We've seen that we have an altar. It's the sacrifice of Christ. If we're looking for where that sacrifice took place, it's the old rugged cross. I will tell you to be perfectly fair and honest, this has been a a difficult passage over the years for interpreters. There are people who have different ideas about that. That's fine. Um, I'm most comfortable with this, and I think it makes the most sense. And I've done a lot of reading on it, so I'm, I'm not claiming to be an expert, but I think what I'm giving you today is solid and sound. I want to move now to talking about the significance of this, which is what we find him develop, developing now in the, in the, in the passage, um, chapter 10, or, or chapter 13, verse 9, on down through Verse number 13. So his purpose is practical. I want to give you four thoughts. And again, I apologize. We won't have a lot of time for these. But I want to give you four thoughts. What's the significance? Because I think as we ponder this, it will really bless us, help to be, put us in a, a, a mind of great appreciation when we think about the cross of Christ and what that represents. I think his first point is this altar that we have is a place of grace. Where do I get that? Well, he says it, verse number 9. In fact, I think this is really his key thought in some ways. At the outset, he says, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats which have not profited them which have been occupied therein. Well, meats, as you know, is the Old King James word for food. You're not thinking necessarily of just meat as we think about meat. You're thinking about food. But everything he's talking about here seems to remind us of all the formality and all the religious practice of the old order. Those types of things were, were nothing if they were not characteristic of the way it was under the old system, under the Judaism of the past. All about religious performance and practice. Look back at chapter 9 for a moment, where I think, again, the writer makes this point. Let me just catch a couple of verses here for you. But he says in verse number 9, well, let's read verse 8 to get the context. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was yet standing. Which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered, look at this, both gifts and sacrifices And he says the same thing here. He says in verse 9 of chapter 13, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to conscience, which stood, in other words, which had their basis. All of these practices, they had their basis in meats, that is foods and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation, but beloved, we are living in those days. We are living beyond the days of the old order, where you remember Paul makes the point a different way when he says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Well, let me take you back to my earlier illustration about the road and the destination. Let's change to Paul's illustration about the schoolmaster and your career, Well, you know, school is really important when you need it to get prepared for what it is you're going to do in life, but it's a means to an end, right? There are people that I think are professional students, but generally speaking, school is a means to an end. And when you get that college degree or graduate degree or vocational degree or whatever it is that you're going to get, you go off into the pursuit in life that you've chosen and you've now been schooled and you're ready to do. Well, the same thing's true here. Now, the law was our schoolmaster. It prepared us. All of those things were very important to demonstrate, for example, that we could not fulfill the law's demands, that we need a Savior. All of the types, the figures that pointed to Jesus Christ when he came into the world. But they couldn't make the comer thereunto perfect, which is exactly the point that he says. Now he's writing to these people and he says, We have an altar. But he says, don't be carried about with all this talk, all this idea of ceremony and formality and all of these things that characterize the old order because they never made anyone perfect. And if you're looking for one word to drill all this down to what it really amounts to is works. And it's exactly what we talked about when we were looking at Romans chapter 8, especially the first part of that chapter and a couple of the Sunday night messages, where Paul says in Romans 8, 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Keeping the law never made anyone perfect. Right? Good works don't make anyone perfect. Those things, the law demonstrated to us our inability to do those things and the fact that we needed a savior so that when Jesus Christ came, we would be ready to embrace him with open arms. Because the cross is nothing if it is not the polar opposite of works. The the cross is all about grace. Grace. Because God so loved the world that he gave. What is grace? Well, you know, it's often been defined by that acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. And so Jesus came into the world. He died on the cross of Calvary, not because God had to, but because God loved us so much that in his grace and in his mercy, he provided a way of salvation. When we look at the cross, We think to ourselves, I didn't deserve any of that. And there, Jesus says, he's taking my place, he's taking my punishment. This is God's grace, for by grace are ye saved. John began his gospel by saying, the law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote to Titus, he said, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Jesus is all about grace. It isn't that there's no grace in the Old Testament. It isn't that God used to save people by works, but now he saves people by grace. It's all about the fact that God's never saved anyone by works. Paul makes an elaborate argument on that in the book of Romans when he says when did did he believe and have faith? It was before circumcision came into the picture. Works don't save. Works never did save. And the law was simply given to show us that we could not save ourselves by our own self-effort. So this place, this altar that we have, this cross of Jesus that we celebrate is nothing if not the polar opposite because what it tells every man, think about this in a practical sense, what it tells every man, woman, boy, and girl is you can't save yourself. That's why there's an offense. We're going to get to this. That's why there's an offense to the cross, because we like in human pride to feel like there's something we can do. That's why religious systems, exactly like he was warning them, don't go back to this, don't, don't think that you're going to grow in grace by keeping all these ceremonies and, and practices that, that characterize the old order. It doesn't work. What people grow in is grace. Isn't that what Peter said, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our hearts need to be established in grace and we need to keep coming back and be reminded again and again and again that it's only by grace that God can save anyone and if you want the superlative representation of God's grace, you just look at the cross. A couple weeks ago I told you a story about 19th century England and London in particular and of course the big name that everyone knows especially in the latter part of the century is Charles Spurgeon. I was mentioning the fact that uh, in London at the time there was another preacher who also preached to thousands of people, was also quite popular. Joseph Parker was his name. He pastored City Temple and uh, It wasn't quite as large as Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle, but it was large. I mean, it was regular for Parker to preach there to 2,000 people on the Lord's Day, and and Parker was a tremendous preacher also. So you can imagine these two heavyweights in the same town, and they had a decent relationship, but like all those things, eh, there were times that it had its ups and downs, and there was Maybe a spat here and a spat there. Well, I want to tell you about one of those spats. <laughs> so, one Sunday, it, word got back to Spurgeon that Parker had said something the Sunday before about the children that were at Spurgeon's orphanage. They both had orphanages, and Spurgeon had one as part of his ministry, and. Parker commented on the poor condition of the children who were admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. Well, herein lies the danger. The report got back to Spurgeon that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. Well, that lit his fire. And the mistake was that he didn't check first to be sure that he had the story right. The next Sunday, Spurgeon went to the pulpit, and boy, did he blast Parker. And when he did this, I mean, this was a sensation. All of London wanted to find out next week what Parker was going to say, how Parker was going to respond. The papers picked this up that, that Spurgeon had just blasted Parker for criticizing his orphanage. Parker got up, and instead of doing what many people were hoping or thinking he would do, which would be to return fire... He got up and he said something like this. I understand that Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this is the Sunday that they normally take an offering for the orphanage, for Spurgeon's orphanage. So he said, I suggest that we take a love offering today here instead. All the people were delighted that their pastor had handled this with such grace and had handled it so wisely. Not, not getting involved in returning fire, but instead... Repaying what seemed to be evil with good. And so they took this offering up. Now, you folks don't use plates, but except the very first ministry that I was in, I've always been with plates. I've never seen this happen. I would like to see it happen once in my lifetime. That Sunday, they took that offering at City Temple, passed those plates. They had to empty them and pass them three times. The offering was so great that Sunday. A little bit later that week, later in the week, in the following week, there came a knock at Spurgeon's study door. Or at Parker, sorry, at Parker's. And it was Spurgeon. When Parker opened the door, Spurgeon said to him, Parker, he said, uh, you have... You know, Parker, he said, you have practiced grace on me. You have not given me what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. Well, beloved, that's exactly what God did at the cross of Calvary. He practiced grace on us. He didn't give us what we deserved, He gave us what we needed. So this altar is a place of grace, first and foremost. Secondly, we're going to blend two thoughts. Second and third, it's a place of suffering, and it's a place of sanctification. Look at verse 12, where the writer says this to us. For Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate, suffered. You know, I think the writer is directed by the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing exhibition of the precision and accuracy of Scripture. Because the author to the Hebrews recognizes that if what we're talking about in the Old Testament and the counterpart in the New Testament is the Day of Atonement, which probably is what he has in mind, all right, well, technically the sacrifices were killed within the precincts. It's the bodies that were taken out the camp and burned because they represented the defilement of sin. So he doesn't say here that Jesus died. Uh, he doesn't say that uh, wherefore Jesus also that he might sank the people. It says, suffered without the gate because He's, he's very careful in this. Jesus did die, but the Old Testament sacrifices didn't. And he wants to preserve the point that's being made here. So he says Jesus suffered. Well, so when we think about the cross, we think about it as a place of grace. We think about it as a place of suffering. There Jesus suffered and bled and died on Calvary's cross. And we think again about what the, the writer has to say to us in this verse. Um, and in other places, I think I read to you here recently in a, in a different message, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He suffered once for sins. And how can we think about the cross, really? without thinking about the suffering. And I want to blend that with this next thought because the suffering was a means to an end also. It's the punitive part. It's where Jesus was bearing the penalty. Beloved, I don't understand this. I don't understand how, in the time that Jesus was on the cross, an eternity of God's wrath against sinners could fall upon him. And all of the sufferings that we can only begin to hardly ponder in our minds that must accrue to those that are lost throughout all eternity and confined to that place of suffering that we know is hell. How all of that could be absorbed by Jesus, we can only say he was infinite, therefore his capacity to suffer was infinite. And I don't don't know how to really explain that to you. His blood was of infinite value, therefore it has infinite power to save. That I can understand. So I, I I take the corollary thought. But it was also a place of sanctification. And how did he do this? He did this by the shedding of his blood, whereby he removed from us the pollution and guilt of sin. Just like those Old Testament beasts were taken outside the camp on that Day of Atonement in those sacrifices, and they were burned. Some people say that they took them as far as four miles away. Even the fellow that was had the job to take the To take the animal out there, the carcass, the entrails, everything, the skin, everything had to be taken. Even he was unclean for the balance of the day. His clothes were unclean. Everything about it was unclean. Jesus himself wasn't unclean, but he took our, our sin, he took our penalty upon himself on that cross. I recently came across a story that I thought really helped to blend these two points and I want to quickly relate it to you but you know something about Los Alamos is the place where a lot of the atomic testing took place and the Manhattan Project and all of that that led up to the atomic weapon being developed that was used uh, to end World War II well they continued of course working on all of this afterwards and there was a man who was a Uh, his name was Louis Slotin. He was one of the uh, physicists who was there who was working on these experiments. And it really interested me when I read the name Slotin because, and I looked at his picture, and I thought, yeah, he looks Jewish. Now, I I don't mean that to profile, but it really interested me because when I was in high school, uh, we had a number of Jewish students in that school, and... There was one whose name was David Slotin. In fact, he was in my class. I never heard the name Slotin before that. and I've never heard the name Slotin since that, so I don't know if there's a connection. But this man was Louis Slotin, and what, what he was experimenting with was if you're using the the uranium and or plutonium, whatever the case might be, how much is necessary to produce a chain reaction? And he had run this experiment many times before that you have a sphere of... Uranium here, and a sphere of the uranium two thirty five here, and you're you're bringing them ever closer, ever closer together to get to gauge what does it take to actually produce what the scientists call critical mass, where a chain reaction starts. This was what they were experimenting with and what would happen he'd done this experiment many times before they would get close enough that he could he could begin to tell what he was trying to tell from the experiment and then he would take a screwdriver to separate them so that the chain reaction didn't continue but this particular day he was running this running this experiment this was may 21 1946 he was running this experiment and just at the moment that he needed to insert the screwdriver to to take these two uh, masses apart, he dropped it. They became too close together. All of a sudden, there was a bluish type of a hue that flashed across the room. And Sloton, realizing what was going to happen, reached in with his own hands and separated those two masses. Well, it was self sacrifice there were six or seven other workers in the room. He saved their lives, and when they came to get him to take him immediately to the hospital and to take him immediately to the doctor to do what they could for him, his words to his co-workers were this, you'll come through all right, but I haven't the faintest chance myself. Well, he knew. Nine days later, on the 30th of March, he died an agonizing death from radiation poisoning. Beloved, I'm telling you, this is what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. He absorbed that lethal dose. He absorbed that suffering for you and for me in order that we might be spared. So it is a place of suffering, yes. It is a place of sanctification. This he does by the shedding of his blood, by which he removes our sin and our guilt and our stain. And lastly, it's a place of reproach. Jesus was rejected by the organized religion of his day. He suffered outside the camp. He came unto his own, his own received him not. And the writer to the Hebrews has something that he wants to tell his readers who are flirting with this idea of whether or not Christianity is worth it, whether or not they should stick with this profession or whether or not they should perhaps go back to the Judaism of old. And he says, you know what, here's my challenge to you. We have an altar. We're by no means disenfranchised. In fact, we're living in a day of greater privilege. We see it all. Well, I won't say we see it all, but we see multitudes of times more than they could see in the Old Testament because we're living in the days of of the fulfillment of those things. Looking back on them is a whole lot easier than trying to look forward and interpret But it's a place of reproach. I think of that song that P.P. Bliss wrote when he said, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's still that way. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, "If If I yet preach circumcision, then is the offense of the cross ceased? No, the offense of the cross hasn't ceased, beloved. for those of us who are his followers, for those of us who carry that truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Organized religion doesn't save. Works don't save. Only the cross. Only Jesus. Only he can save. For those of us who contend for that message, for those of us who preach that truth, there is still the offense of the cross. It's a message that does not set well with human pride. And if you think about your own experience It was something that was offensive to you too until the day that the Holy Spirit smote your heart with conviction and you saw that Methodism or Presbyterianism or Lutheranism or whatever it was you were involved in wasn't good enough. Charles Wesley saw that. John Wesley saw that. It hasn't profited those who... Have become involved with it. It can't save. So, if we think about the last thing, I can only just give it to you. No time. But the service that's involved, because if you have an altar, usually, at, you know, in the Old Testament, it, there was a service that took place. The writer of the Hebrews says this to us in verse. Um, Yes, 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. And if we went back to chapter 9, which we don't have time to do, verse uh, 1 there, verse 6 there, verse 9 there, it all mentions the service. Well, do we have any service that we render at this Christian altar? Sure do. We have sacrifices? Sure do. All you have to do is read what? Peter says about it, just recognize their spiritual sacrifices. Think I'm crazy? Write down this reference. I'm going to read it for you. First Peter chapter two, verse five. Ye also as living stones are built up in spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What are those? Did you ever notice the New Testament doesn't make any effort to give a list? That's probably because there are so many of them that we... But the author of the Hebrews right here gives us two. So I'm going to show you that we're on track with this and we've got it right. Let's look at what he has to say in the final verses here. By him, therefore, he says, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. Well, there's one. That's a spiritual sacrifice every believer priest offers to God. What better place, what better time to offer it than when we're brought into the communion of the cross. What better to prepare our hearts to want to praise God than to celebrate what was done at Calvary on our behalf. Then he goes on and he says, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. You know, you don't have to have a special degree to do that. Everyone can do that. Then he goes on and he says this, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. To do good and to communicate, good works. To communicate in this context is to give. We do that. These are sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices that God is well pleased with. The table to which we come today is certainly not that altar. It just represents what that altar represents. It causes us to be able to remember. And if anything should motivate us to want to offer those services, those spiritual sacrifices to God, it ought to be as we think about the cross. Because on one occasion, Cyrus, as you know, the Persian the Emperor Cyrus, had captured a prince and his family. And when they came before the monarch, Cyrus asked the prisoner in the presence of his family, what will you give me if I release you? The man, the prince said, the half of my wealth. Cyrus said, and if I release your children. Everything he said, I possess. And he said, If I release your wife, he said, Sire, if you release my wife, I will give you myself. He released them all. They were going home. The man turned to his wife, and she said, What a princely fellow he is. His wife said, I didn't really notice. She said, I could only keep my eyes on you. There was one who was willing to give himself for me. That's what we're doing here today. And I hope what we've had to say here today will help us in that respect. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.